What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Donald Trump says the world is a mess. Well, if it's not now, it's sure gonna be by the time he's finished with it. Hey, hello everybody. What do you say? Thursday, April 13. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Great to see you today. And off we go to find out what the hell's going on today, talk about what it means, and get your comments as well. Look forward to hearing from you on Twitter, at BP Show. It is the Bill Press Show coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where uh, Donald Trump yesterday meeting with the General Secretary of NATO and uh, right in front of the eyes of the world doing a great big flip-flop saying... Yeah, that NATO is one of the best organizations we've got. Yeah, see, what a difference from what he said all during the campaign. Indeed, we've got lots to talk about uh, among the big stories. That's one of them, Donald Trump, just one of many flip-flops on foreign policy. Steve Bannon, uh, thrown under the bus by Donald Trump. Looks like he's losing, he definitely is losing his influence at the White House and could soon be out of the White House. Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. Spending two hours with Putin yesterday in Moscow. And have you heard, down in Arkansas, there's a killing spree going on. Yes, a mass murderer loose in Arkansas. And it happens to be the state of Arkansas, which is uh, uh, gearing up to execute seven people in the next 10 days. All of that we'll talk about. Get your comments again on Twitter, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All right, just a couple of other stories making news. We continue to follow the saga of Dr. David Dow. He is the man who was dragged off of the United Airlines plane uh, in Chicago. Are you sure so that wasn't Steve Bannon? It was not Steve Bannon. Who was dragged out of the White House? No, no, no. no. Oh, Although oh, we oh. Was, might see a similar video so there. I, I think we might. So lawyers for this passenger, Dr. David Dow, has uh, they have filed an emergency request to require United to preserve video recordings and other evidence related to the incident. In other words, they have to preserve surveillance videos, cockpit voice reporting, uh, recordings, uh, passenger and crew list, and other materials to help build the case because he is going to sue. Uh, yeah, they might as well just write him a great big fat check right now because yeah. they're going to lose this lawsuit. It's going to be a ter- and, and he already uh, said, yeah, uh, yeah. He, he, I mean, it's coming for sure, and he's right. going to get whatever he wants. By the way, on that note, yesterday our friend Chris Van Hollen introduced uh, or announced plans to introduce the Customers Not Cargo Act, which would quote prohibit the forcible <laughs> removal of passengers already aboard an aircraft due to overbooking or airline staff seeking to fly as passengers. In other words, 
Yeah, if you don't Common volunteer. sense, if you buy a ticket, you get to fly. Yeah. <laughs> that- you know, and some of these additional stories coming out from other United flights, whether they relate to this or not. Yeah. Our friend Laura Bassett writing an article at Huffington yeah. Post about a man that supposedly groped yeah. a woman yeah. on a flight, and they didn't do anything about it. It's horrible. Yeah. No, they got a real problem, and, and the airline industries in general could really use a little shake-up. Yeah. So this is- United has a real problem starting with their CEO. Yeah. I mean, he's the guy that should mm-hmm. be dragged off the plane. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a question. Are you worried about World War III? Uh, uh, every day. All right, well, you're not alone. Google announced that the search for the term World War III has hit its highest ever level. Of course, you could point to Syria and North Korea, but people are Googling World War III now. It's the highest that they've ever seen it. Now, it was... Well, when you have a total madman at the helm, mm. yeah, we should be worried. In September of 2013, when we had the Obama situation with Syria, right, uh, people were searching for Syria World War III then. That was the previously highest. But now it is way, way, way higher. So be careful out there. <laughs> yeah. Again, with Donald Trump's fingers on the nuclear button. Yeah. Right? I get it. Yeah. I'm a little worried about it. I mean, he could... He could consider just another tweet <laughs> end of the world on your radio on tv and online this is the bill press show are you ready you better be. Here we are, the Bill Press Show on a Thursday, April 13. Hello, everybody. Great to see you today uh, with lots to talk about. As always here on the Bill Press Show, we are coming to you live on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Looking at you on Free Speech TV, joining you uh, on all the roads and highways and uh, offices and homes and whatever out in the great Chicago area on WCPT, all part of the Young Turks Network, coast-to-coast, coast, your progressive way to start the day by uh, to take tackling all the news stories of the day. Uh, we'll uh, try to figure out what it all means and uh, how it impacts us and our daily lives and our families and where we go from here. Lots to talk about, as always. We are live in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, uh, but we're there with you everywhere in this great land of ours, uh, whether you're joining us watching or listening, and it's good to have you with us. And again, uh, don't just be a uh, silent bystander. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Yes, indeed, lots of big stories today. Donald Trump flip-flopping all over the place on foreign policy. Steve Bannon, who was on the cover of Time magazine just a few weeks ago as the uh, number two most powerful person in the on the planet may soon be out of a job the way it looks at the White House Secretary of State his first meeting with his counterpart in Russia and then he was summoned to the Kremlin for a two-hour meeting with Vladimir Putin and yes uh, an execution killing spree rushed to execution down in the state of Arkansas let's talk all about it let's start with Donald Trump yesterday meeting at the White House uh, with the Secretary General of the uh, of NATO, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, and uh, Donald Trump uh, stunned everybody 
uh, when he talked about uh, NATO and how not only he says NATO has changed, but he has changed his opinion about NATO. The Secretary General and I had a productive discussion about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago, and they made a change. And now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, after campaigning this is for really th- weird, it is so weird. After campaigning for two years uh, to get out of NATO because NATO was useless, NATO was obsolete, the whole thing. NATO, other countries weren't paying their share. We know what Donald Trump said about NATO. It is refreshing, uh, and it's a relief to know that he has come around uh, on NATO. Uh, by the way, uh, the Secretary General painfully had to point out yesterday, uh, and he did so politely, uh, that Donald Trump did not know what he was talking about when he said that NATO never fought terrorism before, but now they do. They haven't changed in the last two or three months. <laughs> uh, as the Secretary General pointed out, <laughs> NATO has been in the front lines of fighting terrorism with NATO forces in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, at a cost of millions and millions and millions of dollars and a cost of thousands of lives of NATO troops that have been killed. Uh, so uh, Trump, Trump is simply wrong on that, and it was embarrassing to hear him say that. But the point is, this is, a while a welcome flip-flop, it's one of... I don't know. What do we count up? Ten. There's one article I saw this morning from USA Today, I mean from U.S. News, that says ten major flip-flops on major issues in the last, like, two or three days. So, you know, it's when the totality of those is not refreshing, the totality of those is troubling. They include, of course, one big flip-flop. Remember, maybe it all started when... The job numbers came out for the first month that Donald Trump had been in office. And then where last year he always said these job numbers were fake, they were phony, didn't mean anything. Now he says, this proves that the economy is booming under Donald Trump. Even Sean Spicer had to laugh at a briefing when he said, well, they used to be meaningless, but now they do mean something, right? That's that, that's one. Let's, let's count them up. Russia, total flip-flop, uh, up until... A week ago, right, he was still saying good things about Vladimir Putin, what a strong leader he is. I can't wait. We have to have a a much stronger working relationship with Russia. You know, now we're basically at at the lowest point that relations have been since the Cold War, if this is another Cold War, uh, with Russia, uh, accusing them of covering up. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's use of uh, chemical weapons uh, in Syria. So a total flip-flop on Russia. How about China? A total flip-flop on China. I mean, before, China was the great manipulator of currency. And they were raping America, says Donald Trump. Uh, and we were not going we to stand for it. And when that President Xi came over here, I got to tell you, we're going to level him, man. We're going to show him who's in charge. Yeah, guess what happened? Sweetness, all sweetness and light. And now he says he's no longer going to raise the issue of currency manipulation because he doesn't think he doesn't think it's a big deal. I've already lost count. (laughs) Uh, Well, we mentioned Syria. There's another one. Uh, Just 
<coughs> pardon me, early last week, Sean Spicer, speaking for the president, said that our new policy is that uh, Bashar al-Assad can remain in power. Uh, that's not our first goal. That's not our primary goal. Uh, we're okay with his staying as president of Syria. And then chemical weapons happen. And then Donald Trump says, I've totally changed my mind. Now our mission is to get Bashar al-Assad uh, out of power. Now, so, you know, it's like, does the guy believe in anything? Does he stand for anything? Does he know anything? Flexibility is one issue, and and that's good, but not knowing what the hell you're doing and flip-flopping from day to day on major policy issues that impact the the power, the presence of the United States around the world is a little scary and a little troubling. It's certainly not the steady hand in foreign policy that we value, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president. With Donald Trump, what's his position on foreign policy? Well, I'll tell you now from what we see, but you better ask me five minutes from now because it may have totally changed. What's so weird to me, especially about the NATO thing, right, is we're not unaccustomed to Trump contradicting himself, right? Like that... Yeah. That's nothing it's, new. It's like almost like who he is. Right. Yeah. But the fact that he acknowledged that, he that he has changed his mind on something is very, very unlike Trump. Like most of the time, he'll just come out and say something different and then we'll just sort of power mm-hmm. through it and not have to answer as to why he's changed yeah. his mind on something. But he sort of acknowledged that he's that his mind has changed. And by and by that, he made up this lie about how they haven't been fighting terror or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. And I, I, I can't figure out what's going on with it. Well, nobody can. Nobody can. And, and I mean, uh, uh, you, have to, you have to know that veteran, the other major, other world leaders and veteran diplomats are scratching their head saying, when can you believe him and when, when, when can't you? Remember... I remember uh, about a month ago, Sean Spicer, at one of the briefings, said, no, the president always tells the truth, uh, except when he's kidding. (laughs) Well, so it's like now. He always says what he believes about foreign policy until tomorrow when he has uh, changed his mind. But the one thing that Donald Trump is convinced of uh, and asserts every time he has a chance is what a mess what a mess he inherited. The world, he said yesterday uh, at his uh, news conference with the Secretary General of NATO. The world is a mess, but just wait. Right now, the world is a mess. But I think by the time <laughs> we finish, I think it's going to be a lot better place to live. And I can tell you that, speaking for myself, by the time I'm finished, it's going to be a lot better place to live in because right now it's nasty. Oh, my God. I mean, what I fear is what shape the world and the United States are going to be in uh, four years from now, uh, because that's the end of the Trump presidency, if, if uh, unless it ends before then. Um, but, I mean, it's just, look, <laughs> we've talked about this before. It's just a lie. I mean, he inherited a robust economy. He inherited a country that, uh, thanks to Barack Obama, that had bounced back from economic disaster with positive job growth, a roaring stock market, 
an economy that was uh, even wages were starting to come up again. So finally, middle class families were starting uh, to feel the uh, rebound in economic power here in this country. Uh, and he, yes, he inherited a world in which we had lingering wars in Iraq and lingering wars in Afghanistan, and we got the problem of ISIS, but relatively speaking, a world that was fair, pretty stable and leadership of the United States recognized and respected, and I might add feared, all around the world, whereas now we've got this, again, unpredictable, unknowable, ill-equipped ignorant uh, man at the top of the, the ladder, and that is pretty, pretty scary. He's just, uh, a, I mean, it, the best word that we can use to describe him, if you look at all of his actions as president, he is an unstable man, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You can say that there have been a lot of presidents who have been wrong on things, but they stuck to their convictions because they thought that it was right, and you can't say that about Trump. No, nope. no. Nope. He's just unstable. Right. Uh, on a related issue, by the way, um, the we don't talk about this much anymore because Syria kind of took it off the uh, off the front pages. But uh, just a reminder: there are still three, at least two and a half, maybe, ongoing investigations about connections between the Trump administration, the Trump transition team, the Trump campaign, and Russian officials trying to influence the outcome of the 2016 election, no matter how much Donald Trump tries to change the subject. He can't do it. This is not going to go away. These investigations are continuing. I mention it because we learned yesterday that the FBI, uh, in fact, did suspect at least one person around Donald Trump of actually colluding with, working with, spying with Russians in order to help them help Donald Trump win the election. His name, Trump Foreign Policy Advisor Carter Page. He was on with uh, Jake Tapper. So what happened is the FBI, Washington Post reporting, thank you, Washington Post, the FBI suspected Carter Page of being a spy for Russia, went to the FISA court, presented their evidence, which was sufficient for... to, to give them a warrant to conduct surveillance on Carter Page. Carter Page yesterday appearing with Jake Tapper on CNN saying he had no idea the guy he was dealing with was a spy. I know he was a spy when I, when I first met him, although okay. did you eventually think he, you know, it came out. Yeah. Did, did, did you think he was trying to recruit you or get intelligence that would have been inappropriate for you to have shared? He never made any indication that he was trying to recruit me. All right. So at least that one person named, remember, so there's the ongoing FBI investigation, the ongoing Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday, uh, uh, investigation yesterday, the ranking Democrat Mark Warner said this Carter Page revelation is very, very, very serious matter, that uh, the FISA court would not have approved it unless there was solid evidence that he was colluding uh, with the Russians. And then uh, in addition to those two, there's sort of the half-assed House investigation, which is sort of stuck in its tracks right now because uh, the um, uh, the games played, pro-Donald Trump games played by Devin Nunez, the, uh, the former chair. Uh, bottom line is the reason I want to mention that is uh, Sean Spicer, Donald Trump are wrong, de- totally, totally wrong when they say that this all amounts to nothing, that there's nothing there. There is something there. And that's why these ongoing uh, investigations uh, must continue. 
Uh, meanwhile, uh, things are not going so smoothly at the White House, at least, Peter, as you mentioned earlier, at least not for White House counselor, senior counselor, Steve Bannon, who started out at the top of the pile and now may be uh, uh, at the very, very bottom. Um, we've seen, first of all, he was the guy, he was the architect of the uh, Muslim ban, uh, which, boy, that's done so well, hasn't it? Um, the, the first one was bad enough. The second one was even worse. They're both stuck in the courts. They've both been shot down. They've both been roundly condemned. Uh, Donald Trump wasn't too happy about that. Steve Bannon, um, the nationalist who says, America first, we don't do anything except protect our own shoreline. He opposed the cruise missile strike in Syria, which Donald Trump now thinks was his greatest triumph. So Steve Bannon lost out on that battle. Uh, and he's been an ongoing battle in terms of major influence with the president, with Jared Kushner, who is um, not only as wealthy as Donald Trump, and therefore Donald Trump respects him, but he is married to, of course, Donald Trump's daughter, which gives him a certain leg up. Steve Bannon has called Jared Kushner uh, a Democrat, accuses him and Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs, uh, chief economic advisor, of being part of the kind of the Wall Street Democratic establishment that's trying to take him down. And so this was all playing out until Donald Trump himself got involved, gave an interview with the New York Post, which was brutal for Steve Bannon. He is asked about Steve Bannon, and here's what he says. Quote, I like Steve. But you have to remember, he was not involved in my campaign until very late. I had already beaten all the senators and all the governors, and I didn't know Steve. I'm my own strategist, right? He ends up calling him some guy who works for me. <laughs> and the headline, in the, York, the headline in the New York Post was, Trump refuses to depend to defend Bannon. Uh, by the way, uh, the fact is that Donald Trump actually met Steve Bannon, the New York Times reports this morning, back in 2011. So he had known him for five years by the time he says he met him. But the point is, the real point is, uh, Donald Trump is basically, he's throwing hes throwing Bannon under the bus. He, he is dragging, yanking him out of his seat and dragging him off the airplane. Yeah, yeah, he's that's exactly him, what he's doing. He's giving him the United Airlines treatment. You, I mean, you have to remember, Steve Bannon is not, you know, like some lawyer working in the White House or someone who is like yeah. in yeah. the inner circle of Trump. Uh, he's the chief strategist for the White yeah. House. Like, this is the guy that helps make policy. This is he's the guy... Strategy that Trump looks to to help guide him and guide his presidency. Like, this is a really big deal. On the cover of Time magazine as the big power in the White House, and they called him the second most powerful person in the country, meaning in the world. Uh, that was about 10 weeks ago, and now his influence waning, waning, waning. The question, the real question is that, and by the way, in Washington, D.C., Palace intrigue is the juiciest topic sure. ever. People love it for every administration. But you got to admit, no administration has given so much uh, to talk about in terms of palace intrigue, so much juicy gossip 
as the Trump administration has, because it all plays out with all these leaks, because that's how they get even with each other. Uh, and so it's Reince Priebus on top one day, Jared Kushner another day, Steve Bannon another day, then Kelly and Conway messing the whole stuff up. So the people in Washington just love to feed on this stuff. Uh, but it, lo- it does look like pretty clearly, with Donald Trump now jumping in, that Steve Bannon's influence is losing. But the point I want to make on this whole palace intrigue is as juicy as it is, as fun as it is to talk about, and yes, even as important as it is, because I'd rather have a Donald Trump with Jared Kushner alongside of him than I would a Donald Trump and, and Ivanka, if you have got Kushner, you got Ivanka, from what we know of them, than a Donald Trump with a Steve Bannon and a Steve Miller in his ears, right? Look, it, but it, on the issue of palace intrigue and whether or not it matters, right? Because there are some people who say, like, oh, this is just internal stuff and this doesn't really matter. It it really it, it to, does matter. To get to the issues that you were talking about earlier yeah. in the segment, yeah, all of these flip flops that Trump has taken, like, He's taking a fairly centrist policy on some of these ideas. Away from Steve Bannon. Away from Steve Bannon. Right. So Bannon is clearly losing his influence, which is going to affect how Donald Trump serves as president and will affect a lot of things, like how the Republicans view him. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot going on here. Right. So as I said, I'd rather have a, a, a Kushner alongside of Trump and in his ear than a Steve Bannon. But at the same time, and this is a very important point, and this is the takeaway from this whole discussion about palace intrigue, you're still stuck with Donald Trump. He still is the president. He is still driving the bus, if you will. And he still is a man who is a climate change denier. Uh, He's a man who wants to repeal Obamacare. Uh, He's a man who wants to give the, the wealthiest of Americans yet another tax cut. He is determined to undo everything that President Obama accomplished. Uh, and he's this man who still wants to build the wall and deport 12 million people from this country. So let's not think that just because Garrett, Jared Kushner, not Steve Bannon, is on top of the staff White House pile, that it could make a huge difference. Not until we get rid of Donald Trump. And finally, let's get outside of Washington. What is happening down in Arkansas is frightening. Well, you've heard, but Arkansas has scheduled seven to execute seven death row prisoners, all convicted of murder, by the way, uh, in the la- in the next 10 days. They're calling it down there a killing spree or a rush to execution. Why the rush? Well, a very important reason. There is this, you know, they use now lethal injection, and it's a mix of three cocktails. One of them which is called, I got it here, medazolam. Medazolam, I guess that's how you pronounce it. That's close enough, medazolam. This is the one that was found as the agent, which resulted in, remember those botched executions out in Oklahoma? I think there was one in Arizona, too. Gruesome. I mean, it took hours and hours uh, to execute these people, they were you know, all writhing and groaning, and it was just embarrassing. One of them, they stopped, and then they brought the guy back the next day. It's because of this midazolam got such a, you know, lethal injection was considered like the humane way to kill people, as if there is such a thing, until this happened. And the manufacturer of midazolam has said, we don't want this reputation. 
this is not what we what we make this uh, drug for, and you can no longer use it. It can no longer be used as part of a lethal cocktail for lethal injection uh, as of the end of April. So that ability to use the drug expires at the end of this month. So Arkansas, which does use this drug, which does use this cocktail, um, they've said, well, we got to take advantage while we can still use it to kill seven people. And they've got all seven of them. There were eight. Now there are still seven over the next 10 days. The governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, says, um, well, I hate to do this. I'd, I'd rather space them out, maybe do one a year or something like that, but I don't have any choice. Yes, he does. He has a choice like other governors do, which is just don't do it. Don't use the death penalty anymore. By the way, it's only 56% of Last year, we had the lowest number of executions for like the last 50 years or maybe ever. There were 20 nationwide. The death penalty is on its way out. Yeah, I was about to say, this is an it's outdated a, yeah, totally, practice totally. on its face. Even lethal injection. Yeah, hanging, electric chair, we got rid of all of that. Firing squad. But now everybody uses just about lethal injection. Still, it's on its way out. Only 20 all last year. Uh, the support for the death penalty is at a 40-year low. 56% of the American people, by the way, still support it. Um, and there are 139, I believe is the number, countries that have abolished the death penalty. We right? are the only civilized country left. Right. We are. That still yeah. murders people. Yeah. So you talk France, you talk Germany, you talk Spain, you talk Italy, you talk Sweden, you talk Finland, you talk the Netherlands. I mean, you go down the list, right? All have banned uh, the death penalty. Uh, you would think that the United States would be among them, not Canada, whatever. No, no. We still want to keep company with, uh, let's see, Iraq, uh, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, North Korea, all of the bad guys. That's where you find us uh, in their company on this issue of the death penalty. Uh, and state, many, many, many states no longer use the death penalty, but Arkansas is one of them. Uh, and again, you're going to be seeing it uh, over the next 10 days. Get ready for it. The killing spree doubt in, doubt in, down in Arkansas, the death penalty may be disappearing across the rest of the country. It is back with a vengeance in Arkansas. Shame on them. We talk about Democrats and Republicans, Green Party. What about the Working Families Party? There's something we ought to know more about and support. We've got uh, head of the or senior political strategist for the Working Families Party coming up next right here on the Bill Press Show. So what happens, as I said, we've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. Well, you headed to Syria. Yes, heading toward Syria. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Happy Thursday, everybody. April 13. Uh, so good to see you today and uh, glad that you are joining us here. 
for our little town hall, a daily town hall, where we tackle the issues of the day. All part of the Young Turks Network. Booming out to you live coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you today by the Laborers International Union of North America. Terry O'Sullivan is the president of the Laborers Union, one of the great labor leaders of this country, and the good men and women of the Laborers Union. We thank them for their uh, work building a better America. That's their website, liuna, L-I-U-N-A, buildsamerica.org. Check it out, and we thank them for the support of the program. Yes, indeed, the Working Families Party, uh, an alternative progressive party here in this country. Want to find out more about it from senior political strategist uh, Delvon Michael, who joins us here in the studio. Delvon, nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Yeah. So, what is the Working Party, uh, Families Party? How long have you been around, and you know, what's your mission? Yeah, the Working Families Party has been around for twenty years. We're an actual third party in three states that allow fusion voting in New York. Oregon and Connecticut, where you can vote for a candidate on two different lines, and 13 other states were an independent political organization that works to raise standards for uh, for working class people. So, uh, explain fusion party. I've never dealt with that. Exactly. So, in the state of New York, uh, when Hillary Clinton was running for president last year, she was on the working families line and the Democratic line. Um, she got a certain number of votes. If she gets 100 votes for the Democrats and 20 votes for working families, she gets 120 votes. But those 20 people were able to indicate that they voted for her for specific reasons. Normally it's policy reasons like raising the minimum wage or progressive issues that they care about. And that gives us an opportunity to show those uh, people running on our line that this is very important to this segment of your voters. And therefore that kind of gets into the table to negotiate and I've, work on our issues. I've heard of that in the past in the sense that on the Republican side, you could be Republican. And, and, cons- and there's a conservative party to Correct. America? Correct. Yep. Yeah, right. Same, same Three same states allow that? Yep. Actually, four states. South Carolina four. does as well, but uh, no secret, not that many uh, progressives down in South Carolina. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hey, there are a couple, man. It's my home yeah, state. Yeah. And that's why you're here with me in D.C. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I'm not there anymore. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so th- you're on three out of four, and then the other 13 states, you said? Yeah, we're an independent political organization, so we run candidates. Sometimes they're able to hear recruiting candidates to run as Democrats to support, again, higher minimum wage, paid families, and progressive issues like that. Uh, we basically see it as our, our vision or our job is to mm-hmm. beat dem- the bad Democrats and the Democrats' jobs to beat Republicans. Yeah. So um, do you have a, I mean, operate like uh, the, the major political parties? Do you have a convention? Do, 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 what, did you have a candidate for president of your own in 2016? Uh, no, we, we no. typically okay. through our um, uh, questionnaire and nominating process, people uh, you know do interviews with our board, and we'll decide as right. the, our membership, which spans the country, about a million folks, gets to vote on who they want to endorse. In the primary, our membership voted overwhelmingly to endorse Bernie Sanders. We sent staff all across the country. My, I myself uh, was on Bernie's African American outreach team and went to 15 states. Uh, for Bernie, we did a huge uh, amount of work for for him, and then just as uh, most folks, once the primary is over, our, our our membership again voted to endorse Hillary Clinton, and we went to work for her as well. Is your goal to be on the ballot in all fifty states uh, and have your own candidate? Is I, that what you're moving to? I or? think the big vision is simply being a, a faction of the left uh, on the Democratic Party to make sure the Democrats don't go too far to the middle and, and stay true to their their uh, their mission. 
Yeah. Which they seem to have lost over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, tell me about it. <laughs> I want to ask you a question about Barack Obama, because I, I think that a lot of Democrats are still pining for Barack Obama, especially when you look at uh, the guy that's in the White House now. But Barack Obama, I think his legacy will show that he was did a lot of damage by being such a centrist. And I think, especially in retrospect, when you look at how he gave Donald Trump an inch and then Trump took a mile, you know, when you look at the immigration uh, things, you look at some of our foreign policy and, and drone warfare and things like that. I think that Donald Trump, or, or Barack Obama was so obsessed with just being a centrist Democrat that I think in the end, when we look back, it's probably going to bite him in the butt. I think, you know, this is my theory on Barack Obama. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, I think... Throughout his life, he was so able to be that guy to broker deals and bring folks together um, that he was beloved most of his career. I think he felt in the White House, he seemed like he wanted to be reasonable. He wanted to reach out because he thought he, I would bring these guys, that they'd love me like everyone else, and they would see that I'm being a fair broker. And he never understood that they hated his guts and <laughs> would never capitulate yeah. to anything for this guy. Yeah. Um, I also, like, I don't, I don't think it's quite fair to lay the Democratic losses over the last eight years at his feet. Some significant things uh, changed while he was in office. Of course, Citizens United, uh, redistricting, and of course, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act played a large, large role in losing those uh, 900 some odd uh, state city, uh, state council races or state legislative races over the last eight years. So, again, that was not very um, helpful. But yeah, you're right. The guy wanted to be loved so badly. Yeah, and he was definitely a centrist and not uh, a progressive. Uh, I might. Um refer you to um, a book that came out a couple of years ago on that very <laughs> topic <laughs> called Buyer's Remorse. Um, Written by. Enough, enough said. Uh, some guy. So as a progressive force in the Democratic Party, you said something a little earlier, certainly which got my attention, that the Democratic Party has lost its way. In many ways it has, hasn't it? I, I mean, and look, you know, I was a big Bernie supporter in the primary, and that was part of the reason. I just thought the party needed a... Real swift kick in the ass. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, again, uh, we made a deal with the devil, as you know, back in the early 90s where we went courting Wall Street to find the few guys that would be on our side. We lost and forgot that we were the party of unions, the party of everyday working Americans. A party of working families, That's shall right, we say. Right? Basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's showing in our policy. It's showing in the way that we go about funding elections, the way we go about building our state parties. Uh, and it's uh, we got to get back to back to basics and, and win those voters back and make sure that the rising American electorate knows that we have their best interests in mind as well. But I mean, yeah, it, it, from from looking from a distance, it was hard to tell the Democratic Party from the Republican Party. Yeah, I, right. Absolutely. In terms of where they raise their money, how they went about raising money, and and uh, in many cases, what stands they took on uh, on issues, and how or, or uh, certainly how hard they were willing to fight for them. Yeah, I, I would think that they did not. It wasn't a full throated embrace of working people. It was like, you know what? I'll be two degrees better than that guy, and that'll be enough. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and that's kind of you know not enough. The folks in the middle of America are actually literally hurting. Um, they have many reasons they voted for Donald Trump, but if you've driven through. Um, the Rust Belt, he was driven through places like, you know, I went to college in Arkansas. You see a lot of places where folks could actually raise, raise a family, make a living with just by the sheer force of their back, um, can no longer do so. Um, mm -hmm. And they see the, uh, in the population centers that uh, Democrats are paying more, more attention to, to places like New York and the Acela Corridor here in D.C. 
and I don't feel that they've um, uh, been looking out for the, the little guy in those other places, and that's how Trump was able to exploit that hole um, and make them feel that, uh, God Almighty, uh, P.T. Burnham actually gave a crap about them and their everyday lives. Yeah. Now, I want to take a wild uh, guess here, and um, and I, 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 I sort of have a feeling that you might have supported Keith Ellison for the next Democratic <laughs> chair. Yeah, Keith's a good friend and I absolutely supported Keith. But that's it. How Tom, did I know? <laughs> I think Tom Perez is a very smart and capable man. I was going to ask you, so what there. confidence do you have uh, in Tom Perez as the new chair of the Democrat, that he's going to shake up the party the way and give the party a total new direction, populist direction. You're not supposed to ask hard questions, Bill. That's, uh, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> I so I like with most institutions, it's extremely difficult. They're like they're like uh, uh, aircraft carriers. It's difficult to, to change the momentum and to change the directions of something so large. Uh, especially when you have people who are used to being in power for so long. But I do think that Tom wants to change, and I think that Keith will have a, a good influence on what the world should. I had a chance to sit down with him. Um, he expressed his desire to actually go out and do things uh, a little differently than they've done in the past. Um, and I, I, I take him at his word. Yeah. Um, I think we all and, – and, and I'm I'm pleased to, to see that uh, Senator Sanders is going out on the road with – Tom Paris. I think it's this week or next week at any rate. They've got a whole series. They're going to, I don't know how many states, right, to yeah. rally up the base and get people all part of the resistance to keep them alive, give them a purpose, uh, talk about what we've got to do. So that's that's a very good sign. I mean, Bernie certainly supported Keith, as we all did, yes. uh, but um, has, has confidence in Tom's ability. And also, I think sort of maybe pushing Tom, you know, a little. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, keep going, keep going here, Tom. Because <laughs> it's, it's, look, it's going to be hard. For, I, my concern is it's going to be hard for him to cut the apron strings. Oh, yeah. Know. When he was running, he came in, he did a great job. Uh, he's, he's a, he is a big progressive. He's been all of his life, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also part of that Democratic establishment, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, lab, labor leader friends of mine who were in, in Atlanta working for Keith, whipping the vote. You know, they were fighting the fact that while they were whipping the vote, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden were all making phone calls to those delegates telling them to vote for Tom Paris. Uh, absolutely. Which, uh, for those folks who are who love, clearly those three men are beloved, even by those of us on the left, Yeah, need to wake up and smell the coffee. Those yeah. guys are the establishment as they come, um, and you got to call it, call, it, call it what it is. Yeah. The Democratic establishment does not know how to speak to gettable voters. Trump got those voters, and Hillary Clinton was the wrong messenger for that. Cl- right. Clearly, like clearly, and, and it's and it's not just I'm not placing it at her feet, but the Democratic establishment has forgotten so. how to offer those voters uh, a way forward and and the best ideas. Yeah, I would agree with that, and, and then also like with this last election. There were some very basic things that we simply didn't do True. because we didn't take him seriously. Like to say that to offer no alternative because he's crazy. But well, he's offering something. He's offering something. What are you offering? Saying that oh, he's crazy. You'll never do it. It's not a positive message. And we learned from Teddy Kennedy. You got to tell someone why you want to be president. And I could for the life of me, it was mid October and I turned to my my allies and like. I cannot make the argument as to why she wants to be president. I haven't heard that yet, and she has not offered something different. And people will believe um, anything in the, in the absence of any other alternate theory or alternate um, vision. Mm-hmm. All right. So what 
Who's the leader of the Democratic Party today, would you say? Good question. It's uh, tough, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a tough well, let, me, let me put it this so, way. Who's the leader of the progressive movement today? Uh, there's, clearly, Bernie Sanders is the leader of the progressive okay. movement. Would you, like, but Bernie's an independent. This is true. <laughs> I, I had this conversation with a reporter yesterday who called me. He's writing a story about Bernie Sanders and said, you know, what do you think about that? He's no longer a Democrat. And he's, that he's presents a, a very unique problem because they're, yeah. the primary wounds are still there. They haven't completely healed. Um, and every day, if you're on Twitter, if you're on social media, you see it every day. And it, it just gets to my craw that people are still arguing about the Democratic primary. We have an existential threat in the White House, a crazy man. It's running the country, and you guys are complaining about, you know, uh, emails and whatever else and Democratic yeah. DNC? Yeah. Really? So I yeah. think you have to almost say, I don't know who the leader of the Democratic Party is today either. Uh, I don't is. think there is one. I think one will emerge, maybe. But for now, certainly, uh, to me, a bigger force than the Democratic Party is kind of roughly speaking, if you will, the resistance, right? The movement. Yes. And Bernie's ahead of that. I don't think there's any doubt about that, even though he may be an independent. Yeah, so in a sense, it almost doesn't matter. Uh, but what, so where, and you're part of that too, what, where do you direct people? You know, where does all this energy go? And how do we, in fact, um, you know, deliver, if you will, a populist movement and also reshape the Democratic Party. Right. Is would, it midterm elections or what? It is definitely midterm elections. I would, uh, and you know, before that, we have to fight them on their legislative uh, agenda now, which is one of the most evil and cruel agendas I've seen in quite some time. And the Working Families Party and MoveOn.org and People's Action are actually doing Resist Trump Tuesdays, where we're organizing folks to go into their uh, congressional offices every week, every Tuesday, to do some kind of action. Huh. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually been pretty successful. Uh, also, you know, we're doing... Let me stop you there, because I, I hadn't heard about... I mean, I know about the... We all know about the Moral Mondays, or at least I do, with the Reverend Barber down right. in North Carolina, a good friend. Uh, but these are Resist Trump Tuesdays. Yes. Yes, definitely. Uh, Go to the workingfamiliesparty.org, and you can plug right I just want to say, in. where do you find out? Workingfamilies.org. Workingfamiliesparty.org. And so these are people going to members... District offices or whatever, and yes, and just showing up and, and yeah. showing their displeasure during the uh, AHCA. Uh, again, I think that showed that uh, people were actually upset, and I think oh, yeah. people, Republicans were surprised at the pushback they were going to get. Um, which you know, basically, the AHCA was just a, a big tax cut for the rich, which is why it was, uh, you know, totally. so uh, such a disaster. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was. As Bernie pointed out, was a six hundred billion dollar transfer of wealth. Yep. That, that's how it. Hey, if you cut nine hundred billion dollars and only save three hundred billion, you do that by giving the six hundred billion to the rich white guys. No offense, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I may be white, but I ain't rich. <laughs> uh, so, uh, all right. So the legislative agenda, which will be health care, tax reform, whatever else. You're right. We got to fight that. Anything they try to do uh, through this Congress, and then focus on. Um, 2018? Absolutely. We've got a, all guns blazing, all hands on deck, and we have to fight them everywhere, all 50 states, every congressional district. We have to contest all of them to maximize our, our, our gains. It's, history shows that the first uh, midterm election after a presidential election, they typically lose seats 
um, this guy is such an unmitigated disaster. Uh, we think there could potentially be a wave, and the way we take the most advantage of that is, again, to put quality candidates up in as many seats as possible and then leave no, uh, no stone unturned. Uh, and we also face uh, redistricting in 2020. So uh, are you also focused on state legislative governor's races, too? Focused on the state legislative races and definitely the governor's races so that we actually have a seat at the table. Um, again, uh, during Barack Obama's term, I think we lost more than 900, 900 um, state leg uh, seats. I'm not sure we can yeah, make that yeah. up. And just, <laughs> <laughs> just saying I'm going to go on a... Uh, yeah, on you're a, optimistic, <laughs> right, but yeah. But not that optimistic, but having the governor's seat, uh, a way to check and... Um, to check those processes would be very important to us, and that's how we actually get back into the majority. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's all related, and that's the the basic the basic building block, if you will. Yeah. And, and one, I think, um, note of optimism is that more and more people, progressives, are coming out of the woodwork and want to run, you know, for office. I mean, I don't know whether you're finding that, but we've had several people, Emily's List, and others who have come in have said yes. they're just they're just overwhelmed with people now who want to stand up and run for office. The energy on the street is incredible. Um, we're doing calls every Sunday, and every Sunday between twenty-five and 60,000 people are joining on to discuss what we're going to do on this following Tuesday. Also, I've done a couple of races whoa, across the whoa, country. that's great. Yeah. And uh, to share Jones' uh, race uh, in, in St. Louis for mayor, and people were coming in, Progressive Coalition, Young White Progressives, uh, Young Millennials were coming in to volunteer. They were just unsolicited. I've got two hours. How do I pitch in? What can I do? And um, it's, it's again, if we can keep the ball rolling, I think we'll be successful in 2018 heading into 2020. Right. And uh, I know you are involved in one of the organizations in the big event plan for this Saturday. Uh, tax Day. Yes, Tax yeah. March. What's going on? Uh, well, you know, after the, the Women's March, which was the largest march uh, possibly in the history of certainly our country, um, Kellyanne uh, Kahn woman came out and said that no one cares about uh, Donald oh. Trump's taxes. And my good friend Jennifer, Jennifer Taub, a law professor at University of Vermont, uh, tweeted out, no, I actually do care about his taxes. Uh, and Frank Lesnar, a, a comedy writer for the uh, Colbert Report, tax out, we should have a tax march. Tweeted, we should have a tax march. Um, you know, those guys went to bed and woke up the next morning and saw that they had started a movement. Like, been retweeted over 25,000 times. Tax March Facebooks were popping up all over the place. And, you know, today and on Saturday, there's going to be 125 events around the country, mostly marches, calling on Donald Trump to release his taxes. It's an incredible um, thing, totally grassroots. And we're expecting about a half a million people to participate and collectively. And also in four foreign countries, don't ask me why New Zealand, uh, England, Germany, and Tokyo uh, care about Donald Trump's taxes. But, hey, we're... we're any support we can get, we're all for it. The tax stuff, it, it, it drives me crazy, right? Because it's not just a matter of tradition, right? Because right. It, it is a tradition that presidents have released their tax returns, or presidential candidates have released their tax returns, but we've never had a candidate whose finances are so murky. Yes. Not even close. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it's really important that we see that the president of the United States has no real conflict of interest here because... Like on the surface, kind of looks like looks like he does. I would suggest it actually looks really bad. And yeah. the more stuff we learn about Paul Manafort and uh, Carter Page is like you know, I, uh, 
to say that there's nothing there is uh, is to put your head in the hole and, yeah. and to pretend that you're an ostrich <laughs> or something like that. But certainly, we need to know the president is actually working for the American people. We don't know what the source of his income is. We don't know to what extent he has uh, conflict offenses and foreign entanglements. And this is why one reason that uh, we want uh, him to reveal his taxes. But, you know, tax marches is about more than that. Yeah. Um, people are, you know, look, he's going to lead up tax reform coming up soon. And we need to know the guy that's leading up tax reform is not only trying to line the pockets of his billionaire buddies and friends and actually working for everyday people like us. Like letting Donald Trump lead tax, tax reform is like letting a bank robber guard the bank. That's absurd. Like, or I would go even way out there. I'd say that's like letting the boss and strength babysit your kids. It should yeah. not be done. Yeah. Right. So this is yeah. uh, this Saturday, um, uh, all across the country, say 125 different events. Um, and people can find out about it, I guess, again, by workingfamiliesparty.org? taxmarch.org. Okay. Taxmarch.org. Yes, sir. Um, here in Washington, um, so this will probably be the biggest march since the Women's March, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, w- where do things start here, and what are the plans for the main event here in Washington? I was going to start at the, the West Grounds at the Capitol. Uh, we're going to march up Pennsylvania Avenue. We'll stop by Trump's uh, hotel, uh, uh, and then we'll end up at yeah. the JFK uh, soccer fields. It actually does exist, the JFK soccer fields. Uh, it's going to be huge. It's going to be box office. Uh, Maxine Waters is going to be speaking Senator Ron Whiting and, and a 10-foot inflatable chicken that looks like Donald Trump will be leading the march. And then we actually have a special guest as well. Be, it's going to be exciting. You had me at a 10-foot tall chicken that looks like Donald Trump. Say no more. Uh, totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, and also Maxine Waters and Ron Wyden. So the JFK soccer fields are down below the Martin Luther King Memorial. Is that? Uh, right. Is that? Just to, I want to say to the, to the left of the reflecting pool, um, past the World War II Memorial. The World War II Memorial? Yes. On the mall itself? Or? Yes. Yeah, okay. I, I just wasn't By the sure way, exactly like, where that is. That is, that is the That's hottest huge. activity in Washington, D.C. these days for uh, singles. Go to some marches. <laughs> like, there are marches like every other day now. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's a great way to meet people. Totally. Uh, but, again, as Bill said earlier, March is not enough. We've got to get yeah. this energy and challenge into the electoral process and get people to stand up and vote. I would dare to say that um, a good number of folks who were marching didn't vote last year. And one thing that cannot be said enough, clearly voting matters. And yeah. I think people get it. I hope they get it. Um, if not, we're in trouble. I, I've had that conversation a couple of times with people who say, I just, I, everybody I talked to said Hillary was going to win. I didn't really get involved. I didn't get active at all and now that's just a lot of regret yep totally yeah but you know the other thing that i hear and i was wondering what do you say to these people you probably hear it as well from your friends i don't want anything to do with politics anymore i'm so disgusted after last november i mean you know i don't want to read the paper i don't want to watch the news i don't want to vote i don't want to i just politics i've had it after what happened what do you tell them i tell them uh well the funny thing is that a lot of people that i've seen that are Trump voters or whatever. You know, people who voted for Trump and now their husbands are being deported. Or people who voted for Trump and now the program that they got their job through is now being defunded. Or now he's, he's trying to cut and take their, their Medicare away from. And people, <laughs> I hate Obamacare, but please, please, God, please, the Affordable Care Act is very important. Those are the ones that not blow, blow me away. But absolutely, I always tell people, I work in politics, and I understand it can be frustrating sometimes. Uh, and tiresome, but like to not play the game 
um, is unforgivable. At, at some point and sometime, decisions will be made, and you either, A, want to have your word, um, your say on it, or, or not play a part of it, and not playing a part right now is too important for that to be the case. Yeah, because the politics is going to continue, right? Yeah, decisions absolutely. are going to decisions yeah. are going to continue to be are going to continue to be made. The world's not just going to stop because you opt out. Absolutely, it's, it's get on board. Everyone, so. It should be the reverse. Everyone should be paying attention and, and weighing in now, not the reverse. Yeah, yeah. I'm so delighted to meet you and to, and hear more about the Working Families Party. I've been a, always a strong, strong believer that the more parties we have, the better. Certainly. We should not be stuck with just a Democratic and a Republican party. So keep 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 uh, doing what you're doing out there. The Working Families Party, workingfamiliesparty.org. Delvon Mitchell. Michael, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks right. so much. See you Saturday. This totally. is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Donald Trump says the world is a mess. Yeah, well, if it's not a mess now, it'll be a big mess by the time he leaves office. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say on a Thursday, April 13? So good to see you. And welcome to the program, The Bill Press Show. We happen to be right here in Washington, D.C., in our studio on Capitol Hill. But more importantly, we are there with you everywhere in this great land of ours, coast to coast. Bringing you the news of the day, our own little uh, analysis, and uh, then looking forward to your comments. Uh, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Uh, lots going on, so much uh, happening, uh, even with Congress out of town, that uh, we need uh, help from some uh, good friends to get through it all. Found one this uh, half hour from with Nikki Schwab. A uh, good friend and a political reporter for the Daily Mail. Hi, Nikki. Nice to see you. Good morning, guys. How are you? Everything good? Yeah. Yeah, things are good. You know, busy. Always right. busy in the Trump era. Well, I know. And uh, the it's thing, exhausting. thing about it the is. Trump era is that what you're writing about changes day to day. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, only the yeah. Issue, not only the issues change, but... His position on the issues seems to change day to day, too. Oh, so. it's like a shiny toy, I've decided. Uh, like, yeah. whatever world leader's in front of him, he likes that world leader that day. Yeah, right. He seems to make nice with all of them. So Nick is here with us from uh, Daily Mail, dailymail.com. And look again, look forward to hearing from you, your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Nikki will jump right into it. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple other stories making news. We will start at Mar-a-Lago uh -oh. because we have a problem down there. Oh, no. There are some health violations. Pythons. There are some health violations Ooh. inside the kitchen at Mar-a-Lago. Now, here is what some of the health inspectors found 
inside the kitchen. Fish designed to be served raw or undercooked had not undergone proper parasite destruction. That's the thing. Like, if you cook under, like, fish that aren't completely cooked all the way through, you have to make sure that there are no parasites in them. They hadn't done that. In the club's coolers, they found raw meats, which are supposed to be stored at 41 degrees, right? 41 degrees. They found chicken at 49 degrees, duck at 50 degrees, raw beef at 50 degrees, and ham at 57 degrees. But they had just left the food mm, out. Warm ham water. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, is there any word on the uh, on the chocolate cake? Do you know anything about and the? And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. <laughs> no word on the beautiful piece of chocolate cake. It's hard to ruin chocolate cake. It is hard to ruin chocolate cake. <laughs> Donald Trump could probably do that. So did they shut them down? Uh, no, not yet. They just got to get these things sorted out. They haven't shut it down. What they said is like with this fish, you mean that. They have to like uh, either cook it all the way through or destroy it. They couldn't serve it as. But usually, when inspectors like around here, they go to a restaurant and they find some violations and they shut them down until yeah. until they know that the problem is fixed. It has I, not I want, been shut. Down. I want them to put like a big like C minus grade. Like, yeah, right? on the door. Oh my god! You know, Can like you they imagine? Do in, you know, he would a lose big city his restaurants. mind. Bill, let me remind you, it's Florida, so that's true. Pretty low bar. Uh, your your, your two hundred thousand dollar membership is going to get you some food poisoning. Yeah, right. It's yeah, be great. Oh, Congratulations, no. you play around a golf and you get botulism. <laughs> right, I keep waiting. Rats? How many rats? They're nothing about rats. It's Florida, are though, the, so the gators there rats eat them. In Florida? Yeah. I was yeah. Say. Oh. Right, there's not a real rodent problem in, uh, in Florida. The, the pythons get them. <laughs> By the way, speaking of uh, of Donald Trump, his HUD secretary Ben Carson is in Miami. He's on a national listening tour. He went into the courtside family apartments in mm-hmm. Overtown, Florida, just outside of Miami yesterday, and he got a real taste of what it's like to live in public housing. He got stuck in the elevator. He was on a tour with Miami Heat uh, basketball legend Alonzo Mourning, who runs a, a affordable housing program, and Ben Carson got stuck in the elevator. <laughs> and they'll sit around and wait for him. He was 15 minutes late because he was stuck in the elevator. Did he Gotcha. Did he have to crawl out? The no, they finally got someone to fix the elevator and got him out. That would have been. <laughs> Those pictures. Yeah, right? On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Happy Thursday, Thursday, April 13. It is the Bill Press Show. It's good to have you with us uh, here. Hour number two on this Thursday. Again, live from Washington, D.C. And reaching out to you all part of the Young Turks Network on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Go there, sign up if you haven't already done so. We're looking at you on Free Speech TV and joining you uh, across uh, the Chicago area, city of Chicago, and the great suburbs on WCPT. Uh, and don't forget, we remind you every once in a while uh, about our podcast. Uh, and uh, Peter, you give a little podcast report. Check it out on iTunes. Just look for the Bill Press Show. We're on iTunes. Download, 
rate, review, subscribe. It's very important if you subscribe, it just automatically sends to your phone every day. If you don't use iTunes, just go to BillPriceShow.com. We have it embedded there. We have other ways that you can get it. But uh, we take the whole show. We put it up after the, uh, after and, the show. Yeah. And the uh, podcast is just going bonkers, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Go get go get your hands on it. All right. We got it. Again, Nikki Schwab with us from uh, the Daily Mail. So, um Nikki, yesterday, a big event at the museum. At the museum, Just yeah. down the street here. Uh, Greta Van Susteren interviewing the beleaguered press secretary, <laughs> Sean Spicer. I was there the day before uh, oh, when man. he stepped on his you-know-what. He was <laughs> asked about it yesterday by Greta, and he just fessed up. I made a mistake. Uh, there's no other way. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I got into a topic that I shouldn't have, and uh, and I screwed up. And uh, professionally, he says, uh, uh, kind of a double whammy. On a professional level, it's disappointing because I think I, I've, I've let the president down. Um, and so on a, both a personal level and a professional level, that would definitely go down as uh, not a very good day in my, my history. So you've written about this, uh, his uh, apology tour, which actually Indeed. started with Wolf Blitzer on uh, on CNN. And a couple uh, statements from the White House as well. And actually, mid-press briefing, he tried to sort of oh. massage it, but I don't think he was quite understanding what people were starting to sort of say no. about this whole controversy. Well, particularly, like, again... About, about the gas, Sean Spicer. <laughs> and he's like, right. well, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he finally got to that point in that clip where he just... Not, yeah, again, shut I, it down. I, I was there just like everybody else, stunned, right? About what he, what, what, how bad this was, and he kept digging it deeper and deeper. Yeah, and it was in that attempt to walk it back that he said, "Well, Hitler didn't drop the bombs from the air on innocent people in towns. He just took them to the Holocaust centers." Holocaust centers. <laughs> Still can't believe that phrase. Oh yeah. man! All right. So the question is, does he survive? That's a very good question. Um, I think he does for now. Because I think right now, Bannon is the one that's getting most of Trump's ire. And it's more so because Bannon was sort of taking the attention away from Trump, not that he was like massively screwing up like Sean Spicer did. Hmm. So I think that that's sort of the differentiating factor. That uh, interview that, that Trump did yesterday where he's like, oh, Bannon's a guy that works for me. Yeah. I think that that was sort of more indicative of like where Trump is with his staff than, you know, the fact that, that Spicer went on this apology tour. Of course, like, it was very important, you know, I think for the president, for, for Sean to do this, because, I mean, I think that, you know, Sean Spicer and anyone else in PR knows that you never want to sort of bring up, oh, hey, the Holocaust, let's talk about that and compare it with something else. Like, never, that's, ever, that's ever, ever do that. That's, that's literally like rule like, number one. If I was teaching a public relations course to students, I'd be like, number one, <laughs> don't ever bring up the Holocaust. <laughs> or Hitler. Or Hitler, unless no. you're talking about I mean, the Holocaust or Hitler, period. Right. Done. I have never, Stop. never, never seen anybody, Republican or Democrat or non-politician ever, in, invoke Hitler Bring Hitler into the conversation that it hasn't turned out badly. It always is. It's always it's always bad. Hitler is Hitler. I mean, there's right. You just can't make any comparison. Same with the Holocaust, and and people do it all the time, trying to say this is worse than or this is what not as bad or whatever. And that. But, but you know what's interesting is that you know hearing General Mattis speak. You know, I believe it was a couple hours later. It was the same day, or you know, within the same twenty-four hour cycle. The point that I think that Sean was trying to make was the fact 
that on the battlefield, these chemical weapons hadn't been used in World War II. And Mattis actually said that at the press conference. I think that was sort of supposed to be the point, but still, like, no, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And Spicer just dives in, you know, he does it all the time, you know, and he he says stuff that you just can't can't but, believe but and you can't follow. He gets too combative with, yes. the, with, and with too, the, the right. journalist in the room. And the, but the big problem with that is, like, Sean Spicer's an idiot, <laughs> right? Like, I, I, I'm not trying to be too dismissive of him because he has a very powerful uh, podium. But, like, he comes out and he says, I speak for the president. When I speak... I'm speaking for the president. And he's, I mean, he doesn't know how to say people's names. He completely botches. Uh, Bashar al-Assad. With Bashar al-Assad uh, in, in charge. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. he's Word constantly woman. fumbling over his words. He's just, he's not a very bright man. Bashar al-Assad, I know you've mispronounced his name we'll a few times. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to throw a knowledge actually, dart at what's, him. What's sort of interesting, um, I don't know if you know this about Wolf Blitzer, but his grandparents died at Auschwitz. Yeah. And, yeah. His, and his parents survived, obviously, um, and then immigrated to the U.S. and he grew up in Buffalo. But, I mean, it, it, it was kind of almost perfect that Wolf Blitzer was the one, uh, you know, giving Sean the first sort of set of questions. And he was sort of like, so who exactly are you apologizing to was one of his questions. <laughs> and Wolf Blitzer was probably like, me, you're apologizing to me. Because my grandparents yeah. were slaughtered in the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah right. But I, I agree. Jeez. I do think uh, Spicer survives. Uh, now let's get to uh, Mr. Bannon. Uh, does he survive? Certainly Donald Trump did not do him any favors uh, no. in his interview with the... Uh, uh, the New York Post again, where he was asked about Steve Bannon. Uh, and he says, quote, I like Steve, but you have to remember, he was not involved in my campaign until very late. I had already beaten all the senators and all the governors, and I didn't know Steve. I'm my own strategist. Actually, he did know Steve. He met him in 2011. Steve was Times. whispering in his ear throughout the entire campaign, and that's why he eventually brought... Him on and Kellyanne Conway and and he did his first interview with oh, I had that note somewhere um, of on Breitbart with Bannon. Yeah. He was Bannon's first guest when Bright uh, Breitbart was doing its radio show. Yeah. Bannon the host. Correct. Trump was the very first guest. <laughs> yeah. yeah man, so they'd known great. each other, but anyhow, Trump did say he's just a guy who works for me. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, again, this this comes to, you know, sort of the essential Donald Trump. I'm the main person in the room. Nobody else tried to, uh, to sort of, you know, go go over my head or look more important or more powerful than me. And I think those, you know, those magazine covers being like President Bannon really annoyed Trump. And then it also doesn't help that, you know, Jared Kushner is basically, basically unfireable. Yeah. So if, if, you know, Bannon and Kushner are sort of worrying about, nationalism versus globalism in the White House. Sorry, Bannon, but like you're going to get screwed over yeah. because the son-in-law and Ivanka are number one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Bannon, uh, and the worst thing he could say about Jared Kushner, called him a Democrat. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. <laughs> so does Bannon survive? If I was going to bet money, mm -hmm. I, would, I would bet more money on... Bannon's head rolling than anybody else's. Yeah. But I still think that there's something to be said about, you know, sort of Trump having his, like, inner circle. I mean, the people we've seen uh, get sort of sliced off, like a Katie Walsh, 
Like she was like, you know, a, you know, a previous underling. She was not sort of part of the core team Trump. And Bannon's still part of that group. So, I mean, I think it's more likely that Bannon gets cut, but I, I'm not sure it's definitely going to happen. What difference does it make? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, when you, when you sort of listen to Bannon or, you know, read up what his sort of thoughts on what he wants as far as the Trump presidency, it's, you know, as I said, very nationalistic, uh, sort of more pro-infrastructure, um, sort of keeping those white working class voters in the in the sort of the Trump, uh, you know, coffers, if you will, when it comes to voting. I think that all of all of that sort of ideology comes from Bannon. I think that, you know, now we're sort of seeing Trump, especially on these like international affairs issues, sort of be more in line with with Kushner. And I think that that might help his approval ratings now as far as uh, as things go. But I think as far as attracting those voters that he attracted in the last election, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- this it, really and truly, if you look at what's happened just over the last couple of days, right, of Trump sort of taking this centrist policy yeah. on, on I mean, a couple Dem- of different Democrats issues. Democrats were cheering him over Syria. I yeah. mean, you know, and if you're, if you're a Republican who voted for Trump, who's more in sort of in line with the Breitbart folks, you're going to be like, what the heck? The Bannon wing of voters would have never in a million years gone and done anything at all in Syria. That goes against everything that Steve Bannon stands for. We have our own problems here. We can only take care of this, and we can't deal with these other countries. And, like, why are you not working on infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the number one question. And that was sort of the thing that I I thought would be interesting, you know, coming out of out of the sort of Bannon ideology, because I think the Democrats... In another way, we get on board with that if it was done the right way. Yeah. Though I, I from any sort of like preliminary plans I've seen, it's sort of like giving tax credits and and eventually paying these people back, and it seems like kind of a mess. Uh, excuse me for 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 uh, those are the crossword puzzle over here. Yeah, he's, show. He's, we're he's, turning he's we're just, turning the pages of the newspaper. <laughs> but I just wanted to be sure before I ask you the next question. Uh, so um, I had to double check my source. <laughs> Uh, and that is um, so. The Daily Mail's a little uh, uh, poorer today oh, than gosh. it was yesterday, isn't it? Uh, well, that, since you work for the Daily Mail, well, I have to ask wow. you. You know, putting me on the hot seat. Well, you, what's, wow. what's interesting yes. is uh, that uh, I I work for the DailyMail.com, which is U.S. based. Okay. The person who wrote that story was out of <laughs> was out of London, so I can sort of throw up my hands and be like, I know nothing about that. You did sure. not. But, but that was that was not that was not a Washington-based story. Our political team would not have written that, so we can sort of take a step away from it. But you know, it's interesting because once Melania gets here, I'm supposed to be re- reporting on her, and I, I'm sort of wondering if because of this whole lawsuit situation, if it's going to be harder for me to get access. Uh, it was for those who may not know a law, a an article that alleged uh, that perhaps Melania, whatever her name was then. Uh, her nice. modeling career, uh, that she offered more services than just modeling, <laughs> and that perhaps she and Donald Trump had met uh, under, under those circumstances. Under those circumstances. Uh, the first lady, now first lady, sued the Daily Mail, and uh, apparently that was settled. Yes. For how much money? I believe, the, I will quote the news reports, which said it was about $3 million. But I actually don't have any sort of like insider knowledge on yeah. that. And there was another lawsuit against. There was a blog. There's a blog, Maryland, a Maryland-based she, blogger. Yeah, that who she put also out the same story. She sued, sued. And, and settled for that as well, right? Yeah. Oh. 
So, I mean, I just think that's kind of interesting that you're in the government and you're suing news publications. That's not exactly the best precedent to set. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> Those lawsuits are usually difficult to win, too. Yeah, beca because she is so well known. Right. I mean, if she was, you know, if it was one of us, perhaps uh, a little easier to, to win a libel lawsuit. But generally speaking, whenever you're the first lady, you're well known enough to uh, the bar is set pretty high. All right. So um, the perhaps the first test of the Trump administration's ability to really govern um, and to handle the awesome responsibilities of the White House uh, will be met on Monday. The Easter egg roll. <laughs> now, they've had a state dinners. They've had news conferences. They've had God knows how many world leaders visit the White House. But that's nothing compared to the logistics of the Easter egg roll. It right? sounds like it's going to be a mess. It does. Why? Well, because I don't think they've realized how much went into an event that usually attracts 35,000 people. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, that is, and yeah. I always, that figure always seemed astounding to me. But yes, 35,000 people. I think that they're going to pare it down to like 20,000 this year. But I mean, and it's And like, they didn't start planning it right until like yesterday? Well, so so the, so what I, I mean, wrote about seriously, that, so what I wrote about yesterday is the fact that and I think this is hilarious uh, they reached out to PBS and then in turn Sesame Street to get like a character or two from those brands and it was like right around the time same time as they announced the budget cuts to PBS that would like eliminate the entire public television <laughs> budget now obviously Sesame Street is sort of self-sustaining because they have sort of HBO and other revenue streams so you know they're they're fine with even if the Trump budget went into it it went into effect. But they should say, we'd love to do it, but we, we can't afford it because we're broke. Well, what no one will tell me is whether or not, like, they're throwing shade at the White House. But I kind of think they are because they're only giving them one character and they're not releasing who they're giving to them. Giving to them. Oh. So I think they're going to give them, like, you know, like the worst Sesame Street character. I'm trying to think of who the worst Sesame Street character is. I mean, is it Oscar the Grouch? Might be. Well, they, no. who no, is it? No, oh, He's so popular, though. I love popular. Oscar. Didn't they, they used to roast Trump back in the day. Who was the? They, well, they should. They had like an actual Muppet of Trump. So yeah. I mean, they could just send that and be like, "Here you go, happy Easter egg roll." <laughs> I don't think they're going to throw that much shade. Um, but you know, I was talking to my friend Tommy McFly, who had been the MC for the last six years, and oh, that's uh, right. And you know, and you know, we were chatting, and I, you know, I wrote up, I wrote up his quotes in the story that I, I did yesterday. You see the guy who was fired? Mm -mm. No. Okay. No, he's a he's a yeah. he's a local radio personality. You think of the parade announcer? I think uh, I'm thinking fired. of the yeah. inauguration, mm -hmm. the guy they fired. Yeah, right. No, Tommy's you know a younger guy had mm -hmm. always done sort of the announcements for these big acts at the Easter egg roll, like Beyonce has come before. Yeah, Janelle yeah. Monae, like all you know, sort of you know the A list types. And he was like, Yeah, I didn't hear anything from them. I've been talking to all the various people that I'd always talked to in regards to the Easter egg roll. No one's heard a peep. The company, and the New York Times reported this, the company that made the eggs actually had to tweet. Yeah, they tweeted they at him. They had to tweet at the White House and Trump and Melania and Ivanka to be like, hey, you're about to miss your deadline if you want the commemorative you want the Easter eggs. Those wooden eggs. Yeah, those wooden Which, eggs. Whichever one, you know, it's, it's sort of a well-known collectible <laughs> yeah. like the, you know, the yeah, White House Christmas right. ornament. Like, you need to have a design, get the eggs out. And so, I, I mean, it's I think it's going to be a mess. And. And, this, and it's also, it's also it's the same situation that we've seen for everything else regarding Trump. Republican National Convention, inauguration, I mean, also the fact that he's not going to be at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. He can't get celebrities to come out for these events yeah. because he's alienated all of Hollywood. Yeah. And so 
who are the entertainers going to be? He's literally going to have like one Muppet. Like oh that's God. it for 20,000 people. That's all I've heard. And they're being very cagey about announcing all these details because I think they're literally just like throwing it together. Uh, and, uh, and like Obama, when he was president, he would like read to the kids. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't let my kids anywhere near Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I think the saving grace might be if Sean Spicer dresses up like the Easter Bunny again, they can at least be like, oh, that's cute. It'll get him some good <laughs> That'll PR. That'll be the story. Good PR. Look at look at Spicy. And then, you know, <laughs> they get, then we won't report on what a disaster it was. And for the record, um, this is based on the fact that Sean Spicer did. Yeah, he did. In fact, dress up in an Easter Bunny suit for George W. Bush. And if you haven't seen those pictures, Google them immediately because they're fantastic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine doing that? Never in a million years. No, no. Uh, put you no, dress. sir. No, no, thank you. Uh, yeah. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't dress up like an Easter Bunny for your kids? No. No, I wouldn't. I'm trying to think of like... Yeah, no, I wouldn't do it. No, no. I think that no. the suit would be too hot. That's it. <laughs> but, you know, I've never purposely never gone to the Easter egg roll because I, that that whole thing, to me, getting in line with 35,000 people or even as- Most a, of them kids. Most of them kids, yeah. right? No. Or even as Pass. a member of the press corps to go and have to go through oh. the security and then get out there and see all these people. But they, it's, it's all day long and they come in waves, yeah. right? I mean, there's yeah. not- because they can't handle There's that. No, many. Like, at least before there was something to see. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like there would right. be performers or, you know, celebrities. Beyonce. Yeah, Beyonce, Beyonce was there. Was there. Yeah. And it no, was... I've never covered it as press either, even though it's always been sort of at least peripherally on my beat. Because yeah. at least in the Obama years, they would shove all the press in the back, like, you know, in these like rope area, and you couldn't see anything anyways. Yeah. And so it was interesting, even trying to find like wire photos of like the appropriate Muppets that I needed for my story yesterday, they didn't exist. We had to like look at the White House videos and get screen grabs oh because, you know, all the reporters were sort of stuck in the back and all the kids were up front. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the <clears throat> the Pope was the biggest thing that I've been to at the Same. White House. I was there was... for that as well, and I and I of course did not get up early enough to be able to see anything. <laughs> uh, so we're almost a um, hundred days in. Uh, I think the end of the month is April twenty eighth. The the deadline for whether or not the government they shut down the government is the it falls on the one hundredth day of yep. the Trump presidency. But last night. Um, Donald Trump was tweeting away like mad about all his accomplishments. Indeed. And, yeah. All, all you the know, success. We're making America great again. We've done, and I'm filling, fulfilling all of my campaign promises. And um, I know Axios yesterday, uh, Jonathan Swan had a story on Axios about that Trump wants to take, everybody goes to the White House to see his big chalkboard, the big white chalkboard, where he's got all of his campaign promises and then check, check. Check, you know, and on this. What what's the reality? I mean, how much has he actually accomplished in this first what eighty two days or whatever it is by well, now? Well, let's think about his campaign promises: repeal Obamacare. Day one, didn't happen. Uh, you know, he was pretty much a non-interventionist, and we just shot some missiles into Syria, so that's not exactly a, a campaign promise. He's upheld, though, you know, again, he's got sort of, you know, a, a bipartisan clap for that one. Get out of NATO. Uh, and then yesterday he reversed course on that. Again, I go back to the whole idea of if there's a shiny object in front of his face, he wants to, uh, 
you know, be friends with it. So, you know, NATO's secretary general comes in town. He's like, oh, you know what? NATO's not obsolete anymore. The, you know, he was supposed to take this hard line on the Chinese, and instead he's basically been like, you know, I liked, the, I liked you know, President Xi. We're buddies. We had some chocolate cake. It was great. You know, and now I'm not going to say that you're manipulating your currency. So he sort of turned turned around on a lot of these, you know, campaign promises of how he was going to, you know, tough talk and not intervene and, uh, you know, do. I mean, what has he done on the Hill? I mean, he's 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 actually the what he's accomplished. I think mostly is he's you know he fell flat on his face on the Hill on Obamacare, yeah. appealing Obamacare. And it's interesting when, you, when I've talked to some other reporters. You know, they say that what was sort of most surprising about Trump thus far is the fact that he just, you know, got completely housed by the House Freedom Caucus. Mm -hmm. Like just, you know, they just bowled him right over. And he, you know, this, he's supposed to be this big deal maker. And where was that deal? I mean, it completely fell through. He doesn't have a lot to point to. I well, mean, I mean, he can point he, to, which is kind of funny because the Republicans always sort of bemoan the fact that, uh, you know, Obama led by executive action. But he's, you know, signed these executive actions. He's deregulated the environment and brought some coal miners into D.C. He has done that. But, you know, so many of those executive orders that he has signed have been more symbolic than real. And very narrow in scope. And very narrow. Uh, And the things that he claims, for example, um, he, okay, I promised I was going to get us out of um, TPP, and I did. Well, in fact, we were never in TPP. And it was already falling apart even before Donald Trump was president. It it had never been ratified by the Congress. And so, therefore, we were not technically really a part of it. Obama Uh, liked it. Hillary and Bernie also both didn't like it, nor did Donald Trump. So no no president who was going to come in after 2016, 2017 was going to be for TPP. Right. Uh, In terms of all the jobs that he points out, we've created all these jobs, all these jobs. Every single one of those job uh, uh, new jobs that he, uh, projects that he has either announced or he has visited like when he went down to the Bellary plan and they rolled out the dreamliner none of them started under him they were no, all started under all, Obama the, the ball was already rolling and some of, of them are, 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 are cases where companies announced a couple of years ago they're going to build this plan and now they reannounce it under Trump and he takes credit for it yeah so I mean when you really if got to, I want to spend more time on this, maybe write an article about it. But when you really look at what he claims to have done yeah. versus the reality, he hasn't accomplished a hell of a lot. No, I mean, but all. he's but he's a great showman. So I think that as long as the economy looks fairly healthy, his voters are going to be like, oh, look at him. He's doing great stuff in Washington. He's, you know, switching things up. So you know, <laughs> as as long as he can kind of keep this charade going, I think he's still going to have. I mean, not that he has great approval ratings to begin with, though they have ticked up a little bit this week as far as overall voters. Not as but, much as you thought. But, you know, but I was... think but I think his cohort of voters will stick with him for a while longer. But I think once, you know, their jobs don't come back and whenever, I mean, if his budget actually goes through, you know, I just think about one element of the budget that drives me nuts is, you know, Amtrak cuts because I take the train home to mm. Western Pennsylvania. I mean, th- those trains, those long uh, sort of overnight trains are how people who are, uh, let's say less rich get around this country. Yeah, and the fact that you're going to sort of decimate all those jobs in those small communities with this budget of yours, I mean, that's exactly the opposite of what his voters wanted. They wanted him to bring sort of jobs and prosperity back to these little enclaves in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Indiana and, and elsewhere. And instead, you're going to like basically like kill rail there. That makes absolutely no sense for for the people that actually voted for you. No. Well, we've talked often about 
how long it's going to take before those Trump voters finally wake up and realize that they were sold a bill of goods and that the guy that they counted on is not delivering. Um, it'll take a while. Uh, haven't seen it. Haven't seen it yet, but uh, um, it'll happen. Nikki, so good to see you. By the way, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thank uh, you guys. The Daily Mail, DailyMail.com, uh, is where you can follow Nikki and her good reporting every single day on the madness here in Washington. Take a quick break. Another uh, a favorite of ours, political reporter Alex Rorty from McClatchy, joins us for the next half hour. We'll be right back. Um, yes, sure. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. What do you say on a Thursday, April 13? Uh, great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show and live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day. House and Senate are uh, out of town, but uh, still a lot shaking at the White House. We'll bring you up to date on it all, thanks to the American today to the American Federation of Teachers, uh, our good sponsors uh, under the leadership of uh, President Randy Weingarten, Teachers of America, doing the Lord's work in the classrooms uh, every single day. We salute them, thank them for their support, and welcome to the program. Uh, Alex Rorty is a political reporter. At McClatchy, McClatchy, D.C. Alex, good to see you. Hey, good to see you, Bill. Thanks These for are having me on. Interesting days, huh? Yeah. Uh, I, I actually feel like we could all deal with deal with living in like slightly less interesting times. Right, now. like ten percent <laughs> less interesting would be great. Right? No, now. no, no. I know it's hard. I keep making this point. You have to run fast just to keep up, right? I mean, it's my job. I mean, it is actually my job to stay on top of the news, and I find it impossible sometimes. I mean, I go home now and will watch cable news, and I, I'm not a big cable news watcher, but I will watch it just to try to like make sure I didn't miss anything major in the day. Oh yeah, no, I have to do the same, and we have to, and then. And I often do miss something. It's like, oh, right. there was some big development. But in the then Russia you have story. to check in again just to make sure, right. you know, what has happened. For example, if you started out yesterday morning, you were on the track that NATO was obsolete. <laughs> and yesterday afternoon, if you were anywhere near the White House or following the cable news, you would have heard uh, the president of the United States say. Just the opposite. Here he is. The Secretary General and I had a productive discussion about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago, and they made a change. And now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. There you go. And and I think it was the, it was yesterday too that he said uh, China is no longer a currency manipulator, yes. right? Yes. Yes. Now look, if you if you believe that Donald Trump won and he did win because of a lot of support from working class men and women, including a lot of working class men and women who have voted Democrat or voted for President Obama, that's a pr- pretty significant change. His get tough on China, you know, tr- uh, change the country's trade policies was a real big part of his appeal, really, to to those voters. And here within the first 100 days, we're already seeing some very abrupt changes. And really, we should say, I mean, abrupt changes to what is more of a sort of more traditional Republican uh, and more sort of Republican orthodoxy on issues like trade or, or NATO or, 
or foreign policy if you include the, the Syrian airstrikes. So the changes happened fast for, for President Trump. Well, is it because um, it, that somebody said, I guess Nikki was making the point, is it the shiny object theory, meaning he's really tough on China until he sits down and has chocolate cake with President Xi. He's really tough on NATO until he sits down with um, the Secretary General of, of, of NATO. I mean, it, it, I, it, it, it seems that way. And, and I, it, Does he just back down, you know, when he's face-to-face with him? I, I feel like, and you, you read reports about this, there is this awareness uh, for, from other countries and even people in the country, in, in this country, who if you, if you can just buddy up with the president, if you can develop a relationship with him, that he's going to change his views. And, and that's the, just the way, I mean, he is in some ways a very personable person, uh, I think he he likes to, to talk to people. He likes to interact with them, and just kind of naturally out of that, you know, he might make a huge change in his you know stated view of the of the world. Um, so it's it's going to be like a crush of of people trying to to meet with him and play golf with him the next four years. But it's all part of the art of the deal, right? That mm-hmm. if you just talk, you, know, you can work it all out. But right. That didn't work out so well on healthcare with the Freedom Caucus. He had them all down at the White House. How many times, right? Right, and and still, and still, they're talking about it. And I, I think, yeah. um, Dave Bratt, the guy who, who beat Eric Cantor um, in in Virginia, uh, was saying he's predicting that they could have a healthcare deal within the next three weeks. Oh, actually, hallucinating. <laughs> well, I, I tell you who who would really like to hear that. In some ways, it's the Democrats because they want this issue to stay alive. The polling on this is terrible um, for congressional Republicans. It brought down President Trump's approval ratings. Democrats, they don't want it to pass, of course. But the longer that this percolates in the political system, the longer that voters uh, hear about this this issue, uh, the better for Democrats in, in their view. Right. Uh, and you've written about that, that 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 Republicans should um, maybe be concerned about 2018. It's just based on what you've seen so far. Isn't it a little early to make that? It, it is. It is early. Uh, but you have to know that the history says that if you hold the White House, you're going to have a tough midterm election. That was certainly true for President Obama in 2010 and in 2014. So you kind of start out at a disadvantage. And then you look at what else matters. Well, the president's approval ratings. Right now, they're pretty low for President Trump. Even after a missile strike. Even after a missile strike, we didn't see much recovery, if if any, um, at least in the the Gallup tracking poll. So you take that, and and that doesn't look good. Well, now we have actual elections happening, believe it or not. Um, You know, there was a a, a special election in, in Kansas last, or Tuesday night, I should say, that I should say a week before the election, nobody in Washington, I don't think, even knew that the election was happening. Yeah. Suddenly, Republicans are making uh, big investments on TV. They're running TV ads. Ted Cruz is flying in. Donald Trump is tweeting about the race. And it was all because the the Republican polling showed in this district that Mike Pompeo is now director of the CIA, won by 31 points, uh, was suddenly a close race. And as it turns out, it was. The, the Republican mm-hmm. only won by seven points. And and there is this belief, you know, when I talk with Republican strategists, that it's not panic because there is a long time between the midterm election now. But there is worry. There is worry that if things don't get better, that it could be a pretty huge wipeout uh, for the party in the next 18 months. We and, and, you know, from a Republican perspective, they have to start figuring out now what could, what is it that we can do to try to turn this around? Yeah. Um, are Democrats aware of that? And are they, um, uh, you know, gearing up for it, let's say, because. We had someone in yesterday who told us that in Kansas, they're spending a lot of money in Georgia, Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Kansas, they didn't spend anything. They they did, um, you know, they did some 
calls uh, yeah. for, for the candidate at the last minute. But no, they didn't spend any money on TV. They didn't spend any money on mail. And it's interesting. You know, I wrote a story um, just today, actually, kind of looking at this. And there were a lot of particularly, I think, progressive Democrats who are angry at the party because they say, look, with the feeling, the, the sort of disgust for President Trump in the country right now, you have to be prepared to go into these reddish districts, these conservative That's areas. Right. And, and fight every the fight. Every race, every district, right? Right. Yeah. Now, now the D, this is, you know, the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, um, who's the sort of House Democrats political arm, you know, they're the ones who are on the hook for this race. But look, they, they make some good points in defense. A, if we swung into this race, we nationalize it. And suddenly people are talking about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and maybe even Hillary Clinton. They see it in a different context than what they did see it as is just, hey, this guy, um, uh, James Thompson, who probably doesn't even really identify as a Democrat when he's when he's running in Kansas. Mm-hmm. All that suddenly goes away. It becomes a story of national Democrats swooping in. The other part of it is, is people just didn't know this was a race. You know, the DCCC mm-hmm. told me yesterday that they did a poll only last week. That's when they saw they headed at eight points. Um, so their polling was was accurate, at least. And, you know, it was by that point, it's too late to do mail. It's too late to set up a field operation uh, in their view. And, and look, yeah, you I know, think they were asleep at the switch. That really that was. is that is the the criticism, and it and it it matters because the DCCC is really trying to partner with a lot of progressives because that's where the small dollar money is right now. And the, just like any yeah. political committee, they need money, mm-hmm. right? And, and so they're trying to build that relationship. But they, you know, they did take in some criticism. We'll see what happens. You you mentioned Georgia. That is a place where they are spending some real money. They're spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars on radio there. Um, you know, that is a place where they have a much better chance of actually winning, I think. And I think Republicans are very cognizant of that, too. Uh, and that's next Tuesday, isn't it? That's Tuesday. Um, so it's just one special election after another. <laughs> there's, there's, there is no break uh, for political reporters in this What's business. interesting to me about this is that the um, prevailing wisdom for some time has been, uh, which I've bought into to a certain extent, that forget about getting the House back. It's never going to happen until maybe 2002 or something, but after the uh, the midterm or the re-elect or whatever of 2020 and the redrawing of district right. lines. Right. Uh, and getting So you get the state houses back, the governor's back, you get better district lines, therefore you can have better candidate, but not better, a better chance of winning back right. the House. But now people are saying, even with the advantage that Republicans have for redistricting, which they clearly have, right? Uh, the Democrats have a shot at 2018. I mean, I, th- I think you have to know that there's no structural advantage that can't be overcome by a really bad environment. And that's what Republicans are looking at. And heavy right. turnout, I guess. Right, right. You know, and, and it's true. I mean, for the Democrats to win the House, you basically are talking about winning districts that are, let's just say, five points to the right than sort of like the, the midpoint district. I mean, this on average district skewed, House district skewed to the right. But if President Trump's approval rating uh, next November is at 38 percent and Democrats are incredibly energized, which I mean, even the Republicans will tell you, actually, Republicans will tell you more than Democrats. They, you know, they see in their polling Democrats energized like they've never seen before. Um, it almost wouldn't matter. You know, Democrats could win a majority and then some, uh, you know, and I don't I don't want to overpromise this because, again, this is, you know, it's 18 months away. So much can happen. But the, the point a lot of even Republicans are making to me is things have to change for our party right now. Something has to happen, whether it's from us or it's an external event, because the way things are now, it's gonna, we're going to end up in a world of hurt in the midterms. Uh, Alex Rogers of McClatchy, McClatchy, D.C., McClatchyDC.com. 
I, I, I want to ask a dumb question. Sure. Um, <laughs> there are no dumb questions. Only dumb people. I ask a lot of dumb. But uh, <laughs> McClatchy, D.C., why the D.C.? So uh, McClatchy is a news organization of 30 newspapers. Yeah, um, I mean, we have a, a DC. So I started my political career in Sacramento, right? Of course. The, it's the Sacramento the Bee, HQ. the, the yeah. Modesto Bee. I knew C.K. McClatchy well. Uh, and um, so uh, to, to me, I see McClatchy as a, as a national chain. I was just mm-hmm. wondering, why the D.C.? Um, you know, we, we have a very large Washington bureau. And in fact, we've been, uh, our bureau has been breaking a lot of stories on, this, uh, on the Russia investigation um, almost every couple of weeks, actually, we have something new that even the Post or the Times doesn't have. We have such a large bureau and so many people writing that it makes sense to collect that all in, in one place. Um, and that's why we, we have a website, and it's a great look. Uh, I think if you're wanting to know the news in Washington, maybe even from the state's perspective, it's a p- great place to visit. All right. The plug is uh, welcome. McClatchy, <laughs> D.C., McClatchyDC.com. But you are still part of the McClatchy Empire. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's, that's the real question, right? Yes. Okay. No, we, 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 I mean, you know, I, I work at the D.C. Bureau, and when I write a story, any of the 30 newspapers can pick it up and run it in, in their newspaper. All right. Um, in terms of Trump and his flip-flops, I, I noticed this morning, this has been maybe somewhat reported, but the numbers I saw this morning I thought were really striking. In terms of security, the cost of security for Donald Trump particularly, but it's Donald Trump and Ivanka and Kushner and Eric and Donald mm-hmm. Jr. and Melania Melania and Baron and what's the other daughter's name? By the Tiffany. way, Tiffany. Tiffany, whom we haven't heard of or seen for a long time. Uh, so far, Don Trump's been in office eighty-four days, and a security cost is rated at twenty. The CNN report this morning: twenty-one point six million dollars. Barack Obama was there for eight years. His, his total cost in eight years was $97 million. Uh, so uh, a quarter, Donald Trump has spent in 84 days, one quarter of what Barack Obama spent in eight years. You can project that forward. <laughs> right. I can't do the math, but in eight years at that rate, Donald Trump is going to bankrupt us. But I guess my question is, does anybody care? Does, does, <laughs> is this an issue that could, could become a... I, I think that's hard to answer because I, I, I a think political liability. I, it, it, it's it's hard to answer because we don't know. That's stunning, though, isn't it? Those numbers. It's I, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and I mean the fact that I mean I saw the the same CNN report that you did, and I think this the question is, you know, I, I think usually in the in the media, especially, we give the presidents a lot of leeway to to do what they want and they have to spend the money for protection because really, in some ways, they don't have a choice. But, but. This is also the sort of thing that I think the the sort of your average voter um, in Iowa or Ohio or wherever understands. You know, oh, he's spending a ton of money uh, on on himself and his family. Now they might think that this is appropriate because it's for security, or they might think, you know what, your budget, uh, for instance, is asking for a lot of cutbacks in other places, and yet uh, the money for yourself, they view it that way, is is skyrocketing right now, and that's yeah. that that's not yeah. fair. So I, I don't I don't know. I will tell you it's probably not something that the Democratic Party will pick up and run with in, in any kind of serious way. Um, but it is the sort of thing that I think does break through to the public and it says, oh, President Trump is spending an awful lot of money um, or a lot of money is being spent on him and the protection of his family. Is there a way that we can 
stop this. Uh, you know, maybe not so many well, trips to Mar-a-Lago. Well, Republicans words. didn't hesitate to slam President Obama for trips True. to Hawaii, for example. Why should he go home? His home happens to be Hawaii. That's too damn expensive to go to Hawaii, right? <laughs> right. He's got to go to Virginia Beach or something, right? Right, yeah. right. right. Uh, so, I mean, he got a lot of criticism for that. But you mentioned Mar-a-Lago. I mean, uh, I think it's the Post or somebody's reported that every trip to Mar-a-Lago was $3.3 million. He was there last weekend. He's going down again this weekend. Camp David's a little closer. Right. It, it, they don't have gold fixtures, I'm sure, in the they uh, have golf in the cabin. Camp David, or they don't have any golf <laughs> either. I, I mean, I feel like the golf folds into this, right? I mean, yeah, this is the sense that he's not uh, being responsible. Um, that would be the criticism that he's not being responsible with his time or the money that's that's spent on him. I, and again, I don't mind that he pl- I don't mind that he right. plays golf. I wish they'd be honest about that's what he's doing when he goes to the golf course and puts on, <laughs> gets in the golf cart and puts on a golf glove that he's right. playing golf instead right. of trying to hide it. But maybe you know it might get to the point where he's saying, "Fine, you know, you're the billionaire and you've got your little club down in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's where you want to go, then you you got to." Pay the price for that, they, uh, right? I mean, you he's he's, uh, he's awfully wealthy. Uh, he's he's told us once or twice. Um, uh, yeah. So so wh- and I mean, that's, and that's and that's an interesting and that's idea. his choice to go there. Sure. To that place, right? Sure. I mean, it it, it um you know it's just I, like the the part of the problem for him is he criticized you know when you talk about golf he criticized President Obama routinely for this. Now look, I am all in favor of the presidents having downtime to sort of clear their head and and be able to, to, to center themselves. I think that's what we want from our, our presidents. Um, but but at the same time, maybe an acknowledgement that the criticism he leveled at President Obama when he golfed was not exactly fair. Uh, you know, that, that might go a long way. Uh, another story that, that of yours has struck my uh, our attention here. Uh, the headline, you don't know. I know you don't don't write the headline, so I can't blame <laughs> Can Democrats cuss their way back to the White House? <laughs> now remember, uh, <laughs> this is a family radio show. Radio show <laughs> okay, okay. okay, so in, res- in your response, you will be measured. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 not. In fact, it's not me who's cussing. It's it's been. Um, you know, we saw a few times recently some Democratic leaders. Uh, Tom Perez, the new chairman of the Democratic National Committee. His new catchphrase is uh, Republicans don't give a, and I'll let your readers fill in yeah. the blank, about people. And mm-hmm. he said that a few times. Kristen Gillibrand, in an interview with New York Magazine, um, used one uh-huh. word that I will definitely not repeat um, a few times, but said if, if, we don't, if we're not here helping people, we can go to blank home, or we should go to blank home. Um, and even Beto O'Rourke, uh, I, I learned about who's the, the sort of long shot House congressman who's taking on Ted Cruz in Texas. Um, you know, was was mixing in expletives and, and some of his speeches as he toured the state after announcing he was going to run. Um, and it just, you know, it, it struck me because, I mean, cursing is 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 usually off limits in, in politics, in public, at least intentionally it is. And I wonder, you know, what is what is going on here? And look, obviously the cussing itself doesn't really matter so sure. much. We're, we're all adults and, I, and this country has real problems, so I'm not trying to be a concern <laughs> troll about about that. But it is, to me, the sort of this larger thing thing going on in the Democratic Party, that they're trying to find themselves after what happened in 2016. And then they're trying to be, I think, more authentic, you know? And that was, that's kind of, the, that was the buzzword of 2016. People wanted to see who you really were. And the truth is that when adults talk, they cuss, you know? And so should you then try to bring that into the, the public space? And, and, and that's happening, you know? And it, it, um, the interesting thing of all the things that you guys, I'm sure know Ed Rendell very well. Um, of course. 
I covered him in, in Harrisburg for a few years when he was the governor. And he would joke about gassing Republican legislators who, you know, wouldn't wouldn't come to terms on a budget agreement and he would do say all kinds of outlandish things. And he he actually, of all people, he said he didn't think it was appropriate. He thinks he even said he, that when he was in office, he tried to be a role model. And, you know, like for Tom Perez, for instance, why not just say Republicans don't give a hoot about people? You know, and so there is there is some or pushback damn. or <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Um, you know, but it, but it is, I, I look, I don't think we're, uh, this is going to be a major part of the next four years as Democrats try to figure out how to defeat Donald Trump. But it was just interesting to me, uh, the Democratic Party tried to just find itself. I, I think your point about, uh, authenticity is, is the most important one because right. like right. there are a lot of people who are just really angry. They're just very, very angry. Right. And usually that, you know, goes along with some salty language that right right right. if you want to prove that you're really angry too you don't really care if you use a four-letter word and that was actually when i spoke with the the dnc um hit tom perez a spokeswoman that was effectively what she said and she said shouldn't be surprised (laughs) if this continues to happen and and in the future i mean you know people are being deported in this country you know there are real problems what is that next to a a swear word right that's the thinking yeah and i've been known to say that donald trump the problem is he just makes stuff up but stuff is not always the word that i use <laughs> it, it, it was so weird when when i wrote the story i got so many emails from trump fans saying that he doesn't curse and i sent them back like a 30 second video of him you know what? of the litany of times that he cursed in in public uh and it was it was really kind of strange and a lot of them actually hmm. said oh like i didn't know that you know i i you know, I didn't. You know, he, I mean, this like some. He said some some really. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we we know about some stuff that he said that was caught on a hot mic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in oh, public yeah. too, in speeches, yeah. he has. He actually said we should just bomb the blank out of ISIS. I mean, we remember. Yeah. That. It was just. We well, used I, to have a clip of when he was talking right. about the effing Chinese. Right. Yeah. Right. Back gotta, way I, before he was a candidate. I got about. I would go to the Chinese and I would say, "Listen, you mother effers." <laughs> right. Right. Remember, that, like, that's, like that's that's that was at a speech. Really. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I would send that clip, actually. And I got about 10 of these emails. It was just it was, it was strange to me, very unexpected. Now, we know that uh, for those of us who live inside the Beltway and, or work inside the Beltway, uh, the, the, the coin of the realm here just about in Washington, D.C. is palace intrigue. We love talking about palace intrigue. And no White House has given us more ammunition, more juice, right, than this administration it, it, it's, it's so open about it <laughs> it really i mean not on on the record but on background they just talk about it all the time that's how they get even with you right they, right yeah each has their own sources right and they play their sources against one another so uh, what is your what is your take on the whole uh, on the whole you know kind of battle now between it used to be bannon versus reince previous now it's bannon versus kushner with Donald Trump weighing in in a very dramatic way with the New York Post saying, Bannon, oh, yeah, he's some guy who works for me. That's all. Right. <laughs> right. Whoa. <laughs> he wasn't. He said he wasn't part of the campaign, I think, or he yeah. didn't join the campaign until late after I'd already beaten already all the Republicans. Yeah. I basically right. had already won when Steve joined us. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it and, and you have to say, I mean, we were talking earlier about the, the currency manipulation that he's backed off that. I mean, that was the, the Steve Bannon nationalism, America yes, first, yes. is all about that. So this is, you know, there are like some real policy consequences <laughs> because of all this. And, yeah. and, and look, I, I think the, the lesson is you don't take on the family. You know, Jared, Jared Kushner <laughs> is, is family. Um, and it's not like he can fire his son-in-law. 
Uh, it's a lot easier to fire Steve Bannon, and we don't know that we're at that point yet, but it certainly seems like we are headed in that direction. And, um, you know, it, and, and like I said, I mean, the, the policy implications of this are real because there are a contingent, um, and, you re- and you read in all these palace intrigue stories, there is the Steve Bannon, Breitbart, America First nationalism um, wing, and then there is basically this, what they call the globalist or the democratic wing. They're not Democrats, but they are more centrist. Wall Street establishment, globalist, I know. Right, right. A lot of Goldman Sachs influence in that. And and that is the wing that Jared Kushner and I think Ivanka and some of his other advisors. So the end result could be uh, a fairly establishment Republican administration. That that's that is the direction we're headed on on all issues, whether it's foreign policy yeah. or the economy or the economy. Look, he says now he might keep Janet Yellen and right. he wants to keep the export import bank, right. which he was always running right. against. We're staying in NATO. That's not not necessarily economic, but there's so many areas where he's just going to move, at least for the moment, into. Uh, contradicting things he said during the campaign, and, and it's it's going to be fascinating to see what his supporters, because his coalition was different. You know, I mean, he he lost a lot of those sort of quote unquote country club right. Republicans who who like yeah. it when presidents yeah. do these sort of things. You know, he had a lot of working class, and it, not just working class, but people who wanted change. Yes. Right? They wanted right. the system to be right. blown up. They wanted him to to torch it all basically and and build anew. And instead, he he is following in falling into this sort of traditional Republican trap. And maybe he can win back some of his country club Republicans, but maybe he's going to lose some of his base. But of course, we must admit, this is the Trump administration, and what you just said reflects the truth today. Uh, we come, <laughs> back some to, time. come back tomorrow, and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll revisit it maybe in an entirely different direction. McClatchyDC.com is where you find Alex Worthy. Have a great Thursday, folks. Come back tomorrow for Jimmy Williams. This is the Bill Press Show. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is the Bill Press Show. You know, public support for the death penalty has dropped to 56%. That's a 40-year low. And only 20 executions, in fact, were held nationwide in this country last year. But the death penalty still hasn't gone away. In fact, it's back with a vengeance in Arkansas, where the state has scheduled seven executions in the next 10 days in what some are calling a rush to execution or, in fact, a state-sponsored killing spree. Why the rush? Well, because this one drug, midazolam, one of three drugs uh, available for use in lethal injections, will no longer be available after the end of April, and Arkansas is in a rush to kill as many people as they can before that drug runs out. Why won't the drug be be available? Interesting story, because it doesn't work. Its use resulted in several botched and gruesome uh, execution attempts. Remember that one in Oklahoma in particular. So the manufacturer of the drug has banned the use of midazolam for lethal injection as of May 1, which ought to tell you something. When even the manufacturer of a drug says it amounts to cruel and unusual punishment, then states should not be using it. That, But that doesn't mean anything to the people of Arkansas. It doesn't move anything, mean anything to the governor of Arkansas. 
it doesn't mean anything to the legislature of Arkansas. They still support the death penalty overwhelmingly. Someday, let's hope, the United States will join 102 other countries that have already banned the death penalty for any use whatsoever, including the UK, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, and South Africa. But for now, we in the United States prefer to keep company with China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Pakistan. Shame. This is The Bill Press Show.